Thank you for joining us for today's show. You can follow us on Facebook or visit our website at BeatitudesChurch.org. Beatitudes Radio, empowering people to enrich society. Today's scripture comes from Micah, chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. Hear this, you rulers of the house of Jacob and chiefs of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and pervert all equity, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with wrong. Its rulers give judgment for a bribe, Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets give oracles for money. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, Surely the Lord is with us. No harm shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. The Bible is full of examples of authority and subversion. Those who believe authority as a means of obeying a dominant class or one of individualism tend to see that Jesus came to save us for the sins of the acts of subversion. Others who lean more towards a belief in the social gospel or even a theology of liberation see Jesus as being an agent of subversion by challenging the class, gender, and societal norms of his time. But the gospels convey a very profound message of Jesus being in a very specific place in a particular time. Emperor Octavius led during the reign of Herod, who was seen to be a ruler, an authoritative figure, who bowed down to an occupying power. And it was during this time that Jesus was born, a man of no importance, no status in the eyes of the authorities. Jesus was born of Mary, among a people that at that time were dominated by the greatest empire the world had seen. Jesus was the incarnation of littleness and service in the midst of power and authority in the world. And his presence was an eruption that smelled of stables. Now that I've opened up your senses, I encourage you to take a look at this picture as I invite us to use art as a way to expand on the idea of authority and subversion in America today. A four foot bronze statue of a girl sporting a defiant look on her face appeared in Lower Manhattan in the eve of International Women's Day in 2017. The sculpture soon became known as the fearless girl, captivating tourists and locals alike. The fearless girl's sculpture attracted immediate attention with admirers snapping photos, sharing on social media, 
as well as the pleas that came for it to become a permanent fixture. But the sculpture did indeed draw backlash, with critics calling it an act of corporate feminism and a marketing coup. Even the sculptor was upset. The sculptor of the Charging Bull statue near Wall Street wanted that facing fearless girl sculpture to go away, saying that the original meaning of the bronze bull of freedom, peace, strength, power, and love had now been lost. The artist said his statue's message had become negative with the presence of the fearless girl there. So who is the figure of authority or agent of subversion in this picture? Not sure? Well, let's delve deeper into authority and subversion by examining it in three parts. Part one. Since this series is leading up to an election that could effectively have long-term impacts on much of society, I want to provide a brief survey of how we developed a sense of an authoritative American identity that we see today. And how the moral issues that we are exploring in this sermon series plays out in our own individual lives. If you were to look up authority in your internet web browser like I did, you'll most likely see pages often side by side with the terms and the concepts of power and safety. But the official definition of authority is the power or right to give orders, to make decisions, and to enforce obedience and to ensure safety. If authority is in part about protecting order and fending off chaos, then everyone has a stake in supporting that existing order. And if we are convinced that we are safe as long as we give power to others and for others to have a sense of insecurity, then the measure of their security is in our hands. And security and insecurity is then oftentimes at the mercy of just one single individual, an authoritative figure, or a group. And when that happens, the control of our behavior becomes routine. It becomes natural. You know, one group may view authority as the power that is gained in an oppression of another group, while another group may believe in the power of collective authority or unity. So if all the above is true, then how do we reimagine authority? Psychotherapist Edward Bernays was Sigmund Freud's nephew, and he believed that authority and power could be used to manipulate the masses, and that that can happen when we are satisfying our own inner selfish desires. He was building on what his uncle had been researching, what people's innermost desires were and what drove us or them to behave the way that they did, especially in the early 20th century when war and the horrifying acts against one another appeared to be inevitable. 
It was during this early 20th century where propaganda was being used to promote and support war efforts across the world. It was at this time that Bernays believed that if propaganda could be used for war, that it could also be used for other things as well. And so he developed something called the Council of Public Relations to advise both the federal government as well as Wall Street in creating a new America. By doing this during war times, Bernays was able to build and capitalize on our human sense of authority and power and to redefine what was meant for us to call ourselves an American. With his help, the definition of what it meant to be an American became someone who had the freedom to consume, to build an identity with and to a product, or even to a group of people based on what it was they consumed. Life was no longer about the individual as much as it was about the larger American identity in the world, patriotism. The Industrial Revolution brought forth this idea of a laissez-faire capitalism, where it was the role of the government versus the role of our private enterprise in our everyday life. Well, that private enterprise led by Bernays' concept of public relations convinced us that you could be more confident, more secure, becoming the best society on the planet through the things that you purchased. It was also around this time that both industry and psychotherapists believed that people could be protected, healed, and even improved if they just conformed. Because if people were left to their own devices, they could not be trusted. And this could be seen in the threat of war that was happening across the world at that time. For Americans to be safe, for Americans to be seen as an authoritative figure, we needed to conform. And in order to conform, we needed an elite class to model good democracy and consumership. Thus, a class and a caste of people were created in order for there to be an authority of a good, common social good. Part two. At first, I didn't know where I wanted to go with this sermon. I wanted to examine authority as it relates to our ancestors. You know, ancestors being the ones who we respect, our parents, grandparents, aunties, uncles, even those wonderful elders in our communities, those natural authority figures, those of them who came before us to have experienced living in the world and experiencing the world already. And typically, while I know that this isn't the case for some or even within our own control, these ancestors, these authoritative figures, often have the best intentions to protect us, to guide us, and yes, even discipline us. What I found, though, even within these relationships, authority can impact the ways in which we self-identify and then interact with the world beyond our own childhood. For example, the father in the Anglo culture has often been perceived as distant or detached and whose approval is dependent on our performance or growth. 
whereas the mother can often be seen as both an authority figure and a giver of unconditional love. Mothers are the protective figure who give us life and who shower us with support, but they're also the first person to tell us no. Later, it is often the mother who separates herself from us, whether to go back to work or to raise the other children. And not surprisingly, in society, she's often represented as both the fairy godmother and the evil stepmother in our children's stories. She is both a deity and a witch. And this deep divide in our psyche can play itself out in very dramatic ways in the ways that we view women in positions of authority. Now, each of these examples impact not only the way that we view authority, but if given the chance to be in a position of authority, then it can play out in the ways in which we model those roles. Well, neither of those examples or those models are similar to my experience. It's one that I've witnessed, whether it be through children's stories, through anthropology, history, friendships, or even loving relationships. But I've always wondered, why is my experience so different? Why was I born the way that I was? And what ancestral influence do I have to make me who I am? Because if you were to ask anybody close to me, they will tell you that I have the DNA of someone who is an agent of subversion. I'm not about reinventing the wheel, but I am about collectively exploring how to make a lived experience of those left out different. Perhaps because I too have been in those situations more than I choose to count. In seminary, I was taught that religion's obedience is about listening and really listening to the needs of those around us. And then from there, to act out a deeper understanding of a collective effect that these experiences have on society. And it was when working alongside women impacted by incarceration, as well as those diagnosed with disabilities in the schools where I taught, that I got to see what it meant to actually live this out. It was in those spaces that I learned what it meant to have your heart broke open while not giving in to despair. These two distinct groups often governed and advocated for the common good. It was never the I, it was always the we. A specific example was a few fall times ago, it's COVID, who knows how long ago it really was, inside a women's prison, we collectively learned about the governing principles of a group called the Zapatistas. This governing guideline was a model on how to care for one another. In 1994, the Zapatistas, which is an indigenous community, took control of a town square, and they established a new form of government, one where they led by obeying. What this means in a larger perspective of authority is that political leaders did not make decisions on behalf of the community as representatives, but as delegates. 
they believed and continued to believe in a bottom-up democracy that consists of cooperation and communal justice that always places people over profits. Para todos todo, para nosotros nada. Everything for everyone, nothing for us, is their motto. Part three. I believe that there are a series of questions that we first have to ask ourselves individually and then collectively in order for us to better understand our relationship with authority and its role in our lives. What do we do with the history of who we are and who we are becoming? For example, even before the pandemic hit, almost a half of the United States population could not pay their bills if they missed just one paycheck. And one in four people reported foregoing healthcare treatment because they knew already that they couldn't afford it. A quarter of the population had jobs that were defined as low wage. You add this to the student loan debt carried by tens of millions of people. This is a pretty bleak picture. Add that to the cost of living that has been rising. It is very clear just how intrinsic poverty is to the fabric of American society. Now with 30 million people without a job and 40 million people potentially facing homelessness in the coming months, the brutally thin line between working and destitution cannot be more clear. Capitalism, remember Bernays's way in which we should identify as an American, in fact requires there to be some level of unemployment at all times, or as what Karl Marx would have termed a reserve army of laborers. Well, those in authority depend on this reserve army of laborers to ensure that there's always someone else willing to take your job. And by doing that, they can decide how the paid workforce will be treated and rewarded. I'm not here to make a statement in one way or another about capitalism. But I will say that William Lloyd Garrison, an early abolitionist who was known as somebody who was an agent of subversion, said that a nation and what it was founded on and how it's behaving is often an unstable contradiction. It matters what is the theory of government, excuse me, it matters not what is the theory of government and the powerful elite, if the practice of that powerful elite in the government is unjust. Let's not forget that democracy, at least early American democracy, was defined by the ability to change its relationship to power. What must our attitudes towards those who claim authority, the controllers of the political, social, and economic life be moving forward? Well, if we were to read Jesus's life and ministry as one filled with liberation, following the golden rule, then it seems like a very appropriate first step. Or if restated, how could we say don't withhold from another that you wouldn't want withheld from you?
How do we understand authority and what is our moral obligation to it? You know, Jesus' message focused on the urgency of radical change, of the inner attitude of people. James Thurman states in Jesus and the Disinherited that again and again, Jesus came back to the inner life of the individual. And with increasing insight and startling accuracy, he placed his finger on the inward center as the crucial arena where the issues would determine the destiny of our people. If we are to be agents of subversion, then what does anti-authority look like? Ask those who are victims of authority. In Jesus, there was life. And in that life was the light of all of us. That wherever his spirit appeared, the oppressed would gather fresh courage and when Jesus announced the good news that fear and hatred has no authority over us, we rejoiced. Folks, mere preaching is not enough. And what are words, however sacred or powerful, in the presence of the grim facts of the daily struggle for some to just survive? Howard Thurman states, it's not solely a question of keeping the body alive. It is rather how not to be killed. Not to be killed becomes the great end. And at that point, our morality takes its meaning from that center. And until that center shifts, nothing real can be accomplished. We're not on this beautiful planet alone. Tu eres mi otro yo. You are my other me. I encourage you to go out this week and all of the weeks to live our lives that way. To be fearless, to be kind, and to be loving. Amen. Thank you for joining us for today's show. You can help us to continue this program by making your donations at BeatitudesChurch.org backslash online dash giving. Beatitudes Radio, empowering people to enrich society.